Many years ago, I read a little pamphlet by a Sunday-keeping preacher that quoted the following scripture, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, quote, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. End of quote. And that was exactly where he ended the passage. That was end of quote, right there. Then he proceeded in this little folder, little kind of a pocket-sized pamphlet that he handed out, to, as he thought, demolish the idea of any requirement to keep God's law. The Ten Commandments are done away, he said. They are nailed to the cross, he said. Christians are not under the law, he said. And he had certain scriptures where he tried to prove that. Over the years and decades, I've decided that the real thing they're getting at, the real aim of all of this, is that you had better not let God catch you trying to keep God's law. You are in serious trouble, friend. Worse by far than if you come, like the harlot who was taken in the very act and are caught in the temple, and there she is, and Jesus says, where are your accusers? And she said, there's no man Lord, because all of them were some of the people who knew her quite well, professionally, I might say. But they had all slunk out one by one. It's interesting. I think people can come and freely confess to have been in prison for a felony or whatever to a pastor of some of these churches. And there's no big deal there. They can be forgiven and be, be admitted. But, and people can give in to their passions and their appetites, and they can go to Mass, in the case, the case of the Catholic Church, or to the confessional booth, and be told to go six or eight times laps around the rosary. But they can also be forgiven by the Sunday-keeping preachers and pastors, except they really get excited. They get outraged. They get nervous. They just really try to go to the nth degree to get this poor, blatting, bleeding, lost, wandering little sheep who thinks he or she needs to keep the Sabbath, needs to obey God's Ten Commandments. That really gets them exercised, I'm telling you the truth, more than any other category of something that you can introduce to them because they know over the decades, and I think my father and I may have had something to do with that, that there are millions of people who have been told you ought to keep God's Ten Commandments. They try to battle that concept every single Sunday morning. I'm telling you the truth. I will drive along. Of course, I don't listen to religion unless I have to. And on a rare occasion, if I'm driving along, and I was, I was in my truck uh, a week ago on Sunday morning, and in small towns, the only thing you can get is local religion. You can't get anything else. It's the local Baptist and Methodist church, and it's the various people that are on the radio, and so many of them are inveighing against God's law. And they will invariably come to this very same scripture. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Period. End of quotation. But that isn't where the passage ends. The very next verse says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Walk in them doesn't mean taking funny little short jerky steps or long smooth strides. It means live within them or in them. When it says we are his workmanship, it means we're his handiwork, we're his creation. Created in Christ Jesus means the new creature in Christ. There's a brand new spirit life that begins when we repent and are baptized and have hands laid on for the receiving of God's Holy Spirit. So a Christian is, quote, created in Christ Jesus. 
unto good works, merely means in the English language, for the purpose of accomplishing good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them, means exactly what it says. Now, is this a head-on direct contradiction by the pen of the Apostle Paul in one paragraph? Well, of course not. Why is it then that these preachers, I think I know the answer, because I think they're dishonest personally, that they will, with some kind of tunnel vision, quote that one verse and refuse to quote the rest of the passage which helps explain and shed light upon the entire thing. They will do it every time. Is the very worst thing you can do. God is up there in his heavenly armchair. He's looking down. He's trying to focus in on you just like a spy satellite which has a resolution so wonderful it can actually see the label of the cigarettes in your pocket. That's what you got in your pocket, which you shouldn't have. But anyway, and he's looking down here. I'm trying to find someone who dares to try to keep my law. Now, if you try to keep my old, terrible, harsh, gray, dull, old, just impossible, flawed law, I'm going to get you. If I try to find you, if you try to obey me, if I find anybody trying to obey me, I'm going to kill them. I mean, isn't that the way you've got to understand it when you really listen to these people? The worst thing you can do is try to obey God. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense in the Word of God, in the Bible, but that's the way they come across. I won't go all the way through John, the first chapter, again with you here, but I do want to at least refer to it briefly with a few of the words because the people that are listening to me on this, in this live sermon are all quite well aware of what John, the first chapter, says. The Apostle John wrote, In the beginning was the Word, John 1, verse 1, the Gospel according to John, and the Greek word logos means spokesman. You see the loge or the logia or the logo of a corporate structure of some kind that is like an emblem or as a name or a sort of uh, emblazoned uh, seal of some kind that is indication of who and what they are. The Greek word logo meaning spokesman and the word or logos was with God and the Greek word theos is the exact equivalent of the Hebrew Elohim which is more than one. It's like club, lodge, group, family. It is one word but it means more than one. The same was in the beginning with God. That is, the Logos was in the beginning with Theos. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So clearly we're being told that he, this Logos, was the creator who created the universe, the solar system, the earth, and all life upon it, who said, let there be light, let the dry land appear, let the seas bring forth these great creatures, let us make man in our own image. A little later on it says, he was in the world, and the world was made by him. Now, do you believe, and those who hear this tape, do you believe by the time you get to this point, you can check it and read it in your own Bible, that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is, in fact, the creator God of Genesis 1? Or do you not? If you don't, close your Bible, tear up the booklet, and live your life, eat and drink, for tomorrow you die. And there's nothing more for you. Because if people are either that recalcitrant, that absolutely bigoted, and that perverse in their minds, that they will stand up and challenge the very plain English of the Word of God Almighty, there's not much hope for them. They may as well just forget it. 
But the fact is that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, of the New Testament, of your Bible, is the creator God of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, who said, I am to Moses, who wrestled in the dust of the earth with Jacob, who called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and who promised David the Davidian Covenant. He is the one who dealt with the prophets. He is the one who appeared and had a meal with Abraham. And he is the individual who said to the Jews in his human physical form, Behold, before Abraham was, I am. And his name is Jesus Christ. And they tried to kill him because they were so outraged that he would, quote, make himself equal with God. Well, he was equal with God. And his pre-human existence was that of divine Elohim. He was the one who said, let there be light, because he was the spokesman that gave the command. Now, over in verse 13 and 14, it says, And the Word, the Logos, was made flesh and dwelt. Now, this word dwelt is different, and it's unique. It's only used once in the New Testament. Different than the other words dwelt, because this word is in the Greek, tabernacled, and has very great significance to the meaning of the Feast of Tabernacles, because he temporarily, as God in the flesh, inhabited, as it were, lived inside of a human, fleshly, physical body of the seed of Abraham, just like you and I. It was a temporary domicile for God from heaven above to sojourn to tabernacle on this earth for 33 and a half years. That's why it says, The Word was made flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, born as Jesus the Christ of Nazareth, and dwelt, Greek tabernacled, among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But back just before that is Dr. Billy Graham's favorite scripture. I used to hear Dr. Graham say this in the late 1950s on his radio program. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Who's it talking about? Well, Dr. Graham knew he was talking about Jesus Christ. Well, who is this whole passage talking about? Jesus Christ. Now then, what are the consequences of someone, including all of these thousands of Sunday preaching pastors, preaching the truth from John the first chapter? That means that this individual whom we know of as Jesus Christ was the lawgiver. And that means they are saying... And here's what most people think, isn't it? Now, you just interrogate your own background. If you used to be Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Baptist, Congregationalist, Church of Christ, doesn't matter. Wherever you went to church before, Catholic, Protestant, doesn't matter. Here's the way it came across. Once upon a time, there was a harsh, old father god of the New Testament. And he handed down a rigorous, hateful, impossible to keep law filled with all kinds of don'ts. Don't do this. Don't have any fun. Don't live your life as you want to. Just don't. Don't go. Don't start. Don't do anything. Just be righteous. Be holy. And that law was filled with flaws. It was a terrible old law. But along came his son, and like a smart aleck young man at age 16 who knows a lot more than his dad, his, his son came along and said, oh, well, these poor people, I mean, they're burdened with this yoke of bondage, this terrible series of don'ts, and I'm going to break that yoke put there by my old father, and I'm going to give them liberty. 
and I'm going to demolish that old law and just destroy it and just trample it underfoot. Matter of fact, I'm going to do more than that. I'm going to take me a ladder and some ten-penny nails and a hammer, and I'm going to climb up there on that cross, and before they put me up there, I'm going to take that hated old law and bang, 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 I'm just going to nail it up there to that cross. And then when they put me up there, they'll see, well, there's the law nailed to the cross, along with Jesus, nailed to the cross. I'm going to do away with that law of my Father. Now, they never put it that way, but really now, isn't that the way it comes across? Isn't that what they try to make you think? What are they accusing God the Father of, if that's who they think was the lawgiver? Well, being either what? Unknowing of the very nature of the human creatures that he's supposed to have created? Uh, not seeing when it says that he's omniscient? That he sees everything, knows everything, knows the end from the beginning, but not seeing how flawed and how much of a failure that law would be and how horribly inept and actually impossible it would be for these people to keep it. So that it would have to come along and repair the damage. Say, well, son, you go on down there and repair the damage that I did through that old law. Now, that is the way they come across. Oh, they will never say it that way. But that's the way they come across. And the fly in their ointment is called the Sabbath. It is not honor your father and your mother. It's not the first, seventh, ninth, or tenth. It is the fourth commandment. Now, if we go to the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, only verses 1 through 3, it says this, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds. Greek word, ages. Time itself and time and space are the same thing, if you understand that. Who, being the brightness of his, that is God the Father's glory, and the express image of his person, Christ said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins. And that's important because God the Father left him, and that's why from his lips came the startled exclamation, Why hast thou forsaken me? When he was dying on the stake. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So, Jesus Christ was the creating agent who did the commanding. He's like there is a, the founder and the chairman of the board, and beneath him is the CEO, the chief executive officer, who carries out the will, the policies of the founder and the chairman of the board. He said, you do this and you do that, and Gordon, you go there, and Henry, you go to the other place, and we'll build a tractor, or we'll build a car, we'll build a barn, we'll build a, a village, whatever. And he gives the orders, and the orders are handed down by the father. And that is exactly the role that God's Word gives us. So it is this personage of the divine Godhead called Elohim, and Elohim, the word for God in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created, means more than one who said in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. And that is not understood and is not preached, and there are literally tens of millions of church-going Christian professing people who think the Bible is the Word of God, 
but are only given little snippets of it, a little smorgasbord of it from time to time about grace and faith and hope and charity and about Christian endeavor and feeding the hungry and giving garments to the poor. Sure, they, they teach all those wonderful Christian values about how to conduct your life with your neighbors and so on, all those wonderful sermons, thousands of them. Some of them you can hardly find any fault with at all as long as they avoid the scriptures as much as possible and just preach nice little fluffy Christian platitudes. But they will not preach these scriptures and prove to their audiences Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament. They will not do it. Now, there isn't one single scripture anywhere in the Old Testament where you can look around and try to find one which knocks in the head and abrogates these New Testament scriptures, or else you've got no reason to even claim the title of Christian, and you think the Bible is filled with all kinds of defects. It says in Hebrews 13 and verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And of course, Malachi 3, 6 says, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Who said that? Through Malachi. Who inspired Malachi to write that? The one who became Jesus Christ. So he is the same and says, I change not. Now, since he is the one who wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger in the most enduring possible writing material known to man, stone, was there something so flawed with it? Did he make such a mistake that he had to come down and abrogate it? Did he abrogate his own law? Well, now you've got to deal with that problem. You're saying, well, it wasn't the Father who gave the law. All right, I'll admit that it was the one who became the son who handed down the law. Then he was so short-sighted he couldn't see how terrible a burden it would be and that those people couldn't even begin to keep it and would be under the consequences and the penalty of sin. He said, well, I've got to come down and change those mistakes, correct those errors, and, and give them some kind of a new law that it will be a lot easier for them to keep. Is that what he had in mind? You know, there are millions, and I was surprised when I saw this survey that was taken not long ago by a Christian publication. There are millions, I forget what the percentages they gave were, who cannot name more than four of the Ten Commandments. And I don't know if it was one out of 10,000 who could name them all. And the vast majority of them, even with those four they might be able to come up with, cannot place them in a correct order. Well, here they are for those who don't know what they are, and I'll even put the numbers in for the sake of categorizing them. Number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Number two, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the children upon the, of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them. Some say the thousandth generation is in the original. Of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Eternal made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Eternal blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. The fifth, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. 
which Paul calls the first commandment with promise. Six, thou shalt not kill. The Hebrew word is rotsak, which means do no murder. Thou shalt do no murder. Number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. Number eight, thou shalt not steal. Number nine, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Number ten, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Exodus 20, 3 through 17. All ten of them in order. When I was a boy growing up in the Oregon Conference of the Church of God, they had a huge, big, like a tapestry, a roll-down scroll on the wall, and in very large letters, the long version, the one I just read to you, with the numbers in place, were there. And as a part of their services, in being obedient to the book of Deuteronomy, fifth chapter and thereafter, which says that we should repeat those daily and we should bind them as frontlets on our forehead and between our eyes and should teach them to our children. It was amazing to me that listening to those people, Sabbath after Sabbath, as a boy growing up, sometimes half asleep, that I somehow had those deeply embedded into my mind so that in later years I could recite them without stopping and never making a mistake because as a part of the service, the congregation stood up and read them aloud together, the Ten Commandments, because that was a church that knew that we should keep the Ten Commandments. Now, review those slowly in your own mind and ask yourself, which one of those would you rather that your neighbors not obey? Because obviously, if the Sunday-keeping preachers are right, none of those are incumbent upon any of your neighbors. Now, the mildest one might be that they're sitting there lusting after your wife, your car, your garden, uh, your lawnmower, uh, maybe your house, whatever, and you know that they're green with jealousy and they just are looking over there and wishing, man, I wish that was my car or I wish that was my husband or my wife. Maybe you wouldn't really mind because you're not aware of their thoughts and so the tenth one, that wouldn't bother you too much. What about if they are prone to stealing? And maybe that lawnmower disappears someday, or maybe some of the, you find some tool marks around your back window and come in there and find out your VCR is gone, don't know who took it. Would you prefer that your neighbors not keep that one? When you stop to think about it, as I prove in my booklet called The Ten Commandments, if you were to apply even one of the mildest of the Ten Commandments to the community at large, thou shalt not steal, for example. You could do away with billions of dollars of loss, countless hundreds of millions of lost man-hours. You could do away with tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of policemen. You could do away with thousands of prisons, with tens of thousands of beds. You could do away with an enormous drain upon society if everyone was honest and would not steal. So when you stop to think about it, those commandments, with that one exception, somewhere between the third and the fifth, would be wonderful if your neighbors kept every one of them. But they're not going to have it that way. They want to do away with all of them so that they are not accused of singling out the fourth one. The idea is let's just get rid of God's law, then we don't have the fourth just goes with the second and the ninth and all the rest of them. We don't have to worry about singling it out. So, of course, it has raged and it has raged and it has raged from the first century onward. In the second century, the Sabbath-Sunday controversy became a controversy. In the third century, it loomed very large. And then from thereafter, all the way down through history, the Bogomils, the Petrobrusians, the Arnoldists, the Valdensians, 
All of these people who were Sabbath keepers who had to be driven underground in the deep valleys of Switzerland and of southern France and of northern Italy and all over Europe, all the way to the time of the Council of Whidbey in 664, when there was still controversy involving whether we should observe the Lord's Supper on the 14th of Nisan, as Jesus Christ said we should, or whether we should observe pagan Ishtar with rabbits and eggs and have absolute paganism as a part of our Christian religion. And the controversy rages yet today. But Baptist pastors and Methodist pastors are more irked and more exercised and more excited about it today than they've ever been. They just can't handle it, and so they really wax eloquent Sunday after Sunday after Sunday against God's law. I've heard it. I've read it. I know what I'm talking about. They do it continually because something is bothering their conscience. One thing is the loss of members. Another thing is the loss of support. But most of all, most of all, if they can just get rid of that nettlesome doctrinal argument, it will, it will get rid of the guilt that they feel in the back of their mind. If they ever allowed themselves to toy with the idea, you don't suppose those people are right. And when they come across some of these scriptures, they've got to say, oh, I better not read that any further. I think I'll just turn the page right quick. That one kind of leapt off the page at me and seems to say that you're supposed to keep the Sabbath. So I think they just ignore it and they go on and they take comfort in numbers. And they say, surely all these people cannot be wrong. Surely these churches with their very beautiful stained glass windows and big huge steeples and their organs and their 120 voice choirs and their crystal cathedrals and all of these wonderful things. You can't tell me all these people could be wrong all down through the centuries they've kept Sunday. So many good men have kept Sunday. Martin Luther, I mean look at all the popes, look at the wonderful preachers, look at Billy Graham, Oral Roberts, uh, Dr. What's his name in the crystal cathedral, they all keep Sunday. They can't be wrong. These are good men. They can't be wrong. And so they use that excuse and they're in denial. And as long as they can kind of in their minds think, well, I'd, I'd just as soon be where the, the major body is marching. I'd kind of like to blend in with the general populace out here. I don't want to be standing out and uh, look like some kind of a weirdo. And people think I am weird if I observe the seven-day Sabbath. So I'd rather just not pay attention to that, just go along with the, with the majority of them. If you go back to that scripture I quoted to you out of Ephesians 2 and verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Are there works involved in salvation? Now let's just establish some very important points first of all. 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is the transgression of the law. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned, meaning transgressed God's law, the Ten Commandments, and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The favorite scripture of everyone, John 3.16, says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, they don't believe they're going to perish, but remain alive, screaming in hell. But on the other hand, these are two opposites, should have eternal life. So understand the definition of sin. There's only one scripture from Genesis to Revelation where it says sin is. Now the pastors will tell you sin is card playing, cigarettes and whiskey and wild, wild women, honky-tonking, dancing, wrong clothes, all kinds of things that people do, all kinds of human habits. 
Sin is alienation from God. Sin is living separately from God. Sin is something that is displeasing to God. They've got all kinds of definitions, usually having to do with their church or with society, certain norms in society or their church, certain mores and a standard or a set of values. And if you somehow go contrary to those values, then you have, quote, sinned, end quote. But they will not tell you it is the breaking of the Ten Commandments, because then they're on the hook again, got to explain away that fourth one. So they generally ignore that scripture, 1 John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the law. Now, Jesus Christ said, and I quote Mark 1, 14 and 15, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel, the good news. You can look up repent in a dictionary. It means to be contrite. means to be deeply sorrowful. It means to emotionally and mentally decide that what you have been doing is wrong and to turn around and go the other way, to become converted, to change, is also a meaning of repent. Peter said on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. That is, for the forgiveness, the obviating of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. So there's a three-part formula for salvation. Repent. Repent of what? Sin. What is sin? Sin is the transgression of God's law. Simple. But they won't preach that. That is not preached. That is never stated that way, and it won't be in your lifetime in all those other churches. They will ignore it. They will avoid it like the plague. They can't stand that because, once again, they're on that hook dangling. Uh-oh. There's that fourth commandment looming over me. There's that law that I can't stand, so they're not going to admit that. But that is a part of the biblical understanding that God Almighty wants everyone to have. What is sin? We're to repent of sin. Now, if we're forgiven, we are said to be justified. When you justify something, you rectify it. Rectify means to stand back aright, at a right angle, upright, perpendicular to the ground. You rectify, you justify. You what? You bring back. If you are redeemed, you buy back. If you go to the hawk shop, the pawn shop, and you redeem your watch, what do you do? You pay off the loan that you got from them, and you get your watch back. Now you're back, ground zero, square one. You're starting all over. You got your watch. Now what are you going to do? Let me give you the analogy that is so obvious. I don't care who hears this, whether Filipinos or people in England or France or New Zealand or Australia or South Africa. But I'm talking primarily of Americans and perhaps Canadians. I am talking to legitimate, freeborn, and or maybe people who eventually became citizens. But I'm talking of citizens of the United States. I'm a citizen of the United States. I was freeborn. I never earned my citizenship. There was not one class I ever had from the day I toddled off to the first grade until I got out of formal education with a doctor's degree clear back in 1965 and went to school all of my young life to get through not only high school, but then a bachelor's degree, and then a master's degree, and then a doctoral degree. And there was never a class, never a course I ever took that had to do with earning myself, my uh, citizenship in the United States. But all this time, I was required to keep the laws of the land. And by keeping those laws, I never earned my citizenship. It was a free, loving gift. I'll tell you who earned it for me, the Founding Fathers. 
the Minutemen at Concord, those who fell in the Revolutionary War, those who fell or drowned at sea in the War of 1812, those who died in the Spanish-American War, those who died in World War I and World War II and Korea, and those who died in Grenada and Panama and in Vietnam and the War in the Gulf. And there they are in their tens of thousands at places like the Anzio Beachhead where I've been with my microphones and cameras marching across the landscape. Sometimes little white so-called Christian crosses and other times little stars of David. Thousands upon thousands of them. Huge military cemetery in the Philippines. A huge one in Luxembourg where George Patton is buried alongside thousands and thousands of his troops who died in battle. My freedom and yours was bought with a price, a horrible price that oftentimes many people take for granted and are not as grateful and as thankful as they should be for the price that was paid. I never had to pay that price. It was given to me as a free gift and I have never worked a single day of my life to earn it, to earn my freedom, to earn my citizenship. But now I'm talking about imperfect situations with regard to the criminal justice system, so I'm just going to assume that it works better than it does. But should I break the laws of the land, could I lose my citizenship? That is, could I lose my freedom? Oh yes, I could be incarcerated for the rest of my life or I could even be put to death, couldn't I? In a perfect criminal justice system, you break the law, your freedom can be taken away from you. Schools even invoke that kind of thing. So. There are rules and regulations, and oftentimes the kids rebel against those rules and regulations. They don't like those rules because they want to be free to do whatever they want to do with no consequences. Now, in the laws of physics and chemistry, you can't do that. God will not suspend the laws involving touching a match, for example, to a great big can of methane, ammonia, and maybe some other kind of fertilizer, and not experiencing a huge explosion. Old Professor Smedley mixing chemicals in smoking vials above the Bunsen burner in his laboratory has got to be careful because there are known quantities here and known factors that if he mixes the wrong one or maybe drops a vial full of nitroglycerin, he's going to dissolve in a pink mist right through a hole in the side of his laboratory, right? He knows that. He can't mess around with the laws of physics. And even though a baby that toddles out of a four-story window is utterly ignorant of gravity and inertia, it doesn't suspend the laws, the baby's going to die anyway. Because gravity will pull the baby down and inertia will whack him when he gets on the concrete. It is the very same thing with God's laws, but people don't look at God's laws as being like a huge, big, solid steel wall. And like some person just running up against that wall. Every time they run up against the wall, it just bangs their head bloodies their head and they sit down all dizzy and hurting. They got a bloody head and somebody might come along and say, why do you keep running into that wall? Well, it feels so good when I quit, I guess is the way they would say it. But they don't understand that God will not compromise one inch with his law. It doesn't matter how you sit there and cry in front of the wall. Oh, I wish that wall weren't so big. Oh, I wish it weren't so thick. Oh, I wish it weren't so high. I wish I could get under it, around it, over it, through it, do something. But I wish that wall weren't there. You can scream, screech, cry, wheedle, beg, you know, make all kinds of funny signs, with your do little dances in front of it. The wall doesn't go away. There it is, God's law. And you've got to do something about it because it demands of you a certain kind of life. 
Let's get back to some expressions in the Word of God that are very, very important. Romans 5, 7 to 10. Why did Jesus Christ have to die? For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, said Paul, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commends his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, what is a sinner? Someone is living contrary to God's law. Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood. What is justified? Brought back, redeemed, rectified. Made right again. You were wrong, now you're made right. But that's with the present. Because justification has to do with the forgiveness of sins that are past. It rectifies you because you're lying flat on the ground in front of the wall, stands you upright, and says, don't bang your head against that wall anymore. You are now rectified. You are justified. So all the past mistakes and flaws and errors and sins and evil thoughts and deeds have disappeared, have been blotted out. They're no more to your account. And you are starting all over again when you come up out of the baptismal pool, just like a huge big field of purely driven snow or a white, white, perfectly clean piece of cloth with, as they say, a new slate, a new beginning, absolutely sinless at that moment because you have been justified by the death of Christ, by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are rectified. You're bought with a price. You're brought back. You're justified. Now what? Scripture says, we shall be saved from wrath through him. But if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, that's brought back to God by the death of his son, that's why he had to die, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved, that's in the future tense, by his life. You see, if the way they tell it, which is, oh, won't you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Just believe and you shall be saved. doesn't require Christ to have ever been resurrected. When you think it through, he could have died for the sins of the world and stayed dead. Because the way they tell it and the way most people assume, and they do preach what the Bible calls licentiousness. That merely means license to do evil. It means permissiveness. I give you indulgence. I give you permission. Once saved, always saved, they proudly say. I've been saved. So I can't ever fall. I can go out and do this or that, the other thing, and I'm saved. I've been saved, once saved, always saved. I'm always saved. They don't understand the Melchizedek and priesthood of Jesus Christ, that he ascended to the right hand of God the Father to be a daily high priest, and that instead of having a human physical priesthood, we have a spiritual high priesthood to whom we go on our knees every single day and ask for him to make intercession for us with the Father. All you've got to do is to study the terms of what it means when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, and what it means when you have reconciliation. A husband and a wife split. They have a trial divorce, but they decide to reconcile. What do they do? They come back together. They start all over again. They're in the same status they were before they split. Be ye reconciled to God, the Bible says. Be brought back, be redeemed, be rectified, be made right and whole in his sight. Now, Christ's death is not the only ingredient for salvation. If it were, why would Christ need to be resurrected and become our high priest? And there is the entire book of Hebrews there waiting to be read, and the entire thrust of the book of Hebrews, the whole book, 
is about basically the difference between the very flawed, short-term, human, physical priesthood of Levi, the Levitical priesthood with all of its added do's and don'ts and its ceremonial occasions and its slaughtering of animals, all dealt with in the book of Hebrews. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. The Old and the New Covenant are dealt with in the book of Hebrews. And, of course, the Melchizedekan priesthood is dealt with in Hebrews. Now, Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. It says this, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself also likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, who is called Samhain, the Lord of the dead, and deliver them who through fear of death, which to them is the unknown, which is why they fear it, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Their own kind of bondage, their own passions and appetites, or the bondage of a religious organization or a political organization. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. He was flesh and blood like we are. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation, be ye reconciled, be you brought back aright, reconciliation for the sins, the breaking of God's Ten Commandments, of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. So Christ's experience in battling Satan the devil, and you see that very quickly in the fourth chapter and thereafter the book of Matthew, of battling the world around him and his own human nature is what qualified him to become our living high priest. The ministry of God's true church, by the way, are not priests. They're merely fellow servants, and they can serve in any capacity, but they are not of rank. They're merely different functions. So let's review what we should have learned at this point in eight major points. One, all of us have sinned. Number two, sin is the breaking of God's Ten Commandments. Number three, Christ shed his life's blood to redeem us from those past sins. Number four, we are forgiven. We are reconciled to God when we accept his shed blood and his perfect sacrifice. Number five, God's grace, which is his free compassion and forgiveness, unmerited, unearned by us, has been applied to us, and we are under a condition called God's grace because God has forgiven us. Number six, Christ's death has atoned only for sins that are past. Not sins we intend to commit or sins we accidentally commit today, tomorrow, or the next day, but just the sins that are past. Number seven, Christ was resurrected to become our high priest in heaven. Satan the devil is called the prosecuting attorney, and Jesus Christ functions as our defense counsel, and Satan is said to be up there before God, accusing the brethren day and night before his throne. Number eight, now that we've been forgiven of our past sins, which are the breaking of God's Ten Commandments, we are commanded to live within them by the help of the Holy Spirit. We are not told, now you can go out and sin again and again and again. All right, here is an analogy. Given it before, but there is a, let's say a felony is committed. And uh, you are the person who has committed it. Maybe you stole some money, held up a bank, whatever. 
And in the trial, a very kindly judge listens to the defense counsel who says, Your Honor, I have here a man who has come forward who wants to pay the entire thing and make restitution and even double, if necessary, amount of a million dollars, some mind-boggling sum of money. And the kindly judge accepts that, waives any further penalty because you've been in jail for 30 days awaiting the trial, and says, All right, case closed. It's all satisfied. It's been paid back. Everybody's happy. The bank got their money back. All the court costs have been paid for. But you didn't have to pay a dime. You were the perpetrator. And the judge says, now you're free to go. But does the judge say, now you're free to go rob a bank? But that's the way they tell it in the Sunday-keeping churches, isn't it? They don't come out and say that, but that's what they imply. That you are able to break God's laws, and there's only one that they single out. And every single week in a lot of mines in this country, in a lot of other countries, that little nagging conscience comes into play. That's why I hear so many of these anti-law sermons and anti-law expostulations as I go driving along and listening to the radio as I do if I'm in my truck on any kind of a Sunday morning. Now, as I said, earlier about the Minutemen and the dead of World War I and II and all the other wars in which people have died to give me my freedoms. I could never earn salvation of God if I lived for a thousand years. That's ten lifetimes of a hundred years apiece. And during all this time I observed God's law perfectly and never did break God's Ten Commandments. Why? Because by my own human nature I am a sinner. I'm under original sin and with my thoughts and appetites, I cannot keep God's law perfectly. It's impossible for me because I cannot be perfect apart from God's Holy Spirit. If you see a very large group of soldiers, and the all they're wearing is their patches and the U.S. and their name and the insignia of their unit, but there are no medals visible, what are you seeing? You're seeing a group of soldiers. You're seeing a group of young men who are doing their duty. They're in the army, they are soldiers, they've been trained, and they're doing their duty. But when you see a soldier or two with a chest full of medals, or maybe that inimitable blue ribbon around the throat with the little stars on it called the Congressional Medal of Honor, or the Silver Star, or the Bronze Star, you say, now there is a soldier who has done a lot more than his duty. He went way beyond the call of duty and has done something really special and heroic. He has been what? Rewarded. He has been decorated. And in some cases, he has been promoted, like Audie Murphy was during World War II, and received a battlefield commission and went from only being one of the grunts, as they say, slogging it through the mud, to a person who was now an officer in the United States Army at age 19, the most decorated soldier in World War II, Audie Murphy. He became a lieutenant. Do you know that works have to do with reward and have nothing whatsoever to do with salvation by itself? If you will go to 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, as I draw for you an analogy relating to our building that is going to be put up. Out there on Highway 155 is a beautiful big slab. It is perfectly flat. It's been cured. It's atop a very well-packed, huge, big bunch of dirt, 160 loads added to the native dirt that was there and packed down by about a week of rain and a lot of heavy trucks and a caterpillar. And the raw plumbing and the raw electrical conduits are all there in place protruding up from the slab. 
lying there next to it are all kinds of steel and panels, all kinds of equipment. Now let's just assume that you have a great benefactor who comes along to you and says, there is your slab. There is a place where I want you to construct a building. He gives you the slab, gives you the foundation. Then he also gives you a huge amount of money, an absolute line of credit at the bank. You can draw as much money as you want. With you, you have no responsibility other than to build a beautiful building on top of that slab. And he says, if you build a building that is really second to none, maybe it's only going to be a little starter house of 1,100 square feet, maybe it's going to be an office building, maybe it's going to be a complex of apartments, maybe it'll be a building as big as the Pentagon. Depends on your ability as a builder. And he says to you, the way you build it, the way you construct it, is the way I'm going to judge whether or not I will allow you to live in it, make your living from it, and it'll be your building from now on. If you go to 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, notice what it says about building materials. And notice the difference between salvation and reward. He is merely telling them that there are ministers by whom they believe, but that they shouldn't be following one or another, like saying, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulus, I'm a Peter, I'm a somebody else. So he says in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 3, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that plants anything, neither is he that waters, but God that gives the increase. Now he that plants and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his labor. This is talking about labor, that's works, and reward, isn't it? For we are laborers together with God. You are God's farmers. You're God's husbandry. You are God's building, His creation. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. And another builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, in this case, you see the analogy of beautiful white marble stones with the names like Matthias and Andrew and James and all of the apostles and names like Daniel and uh, all of the prophets on them because Jesus Christ says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The foundation then is Christ. How do you receive Christ? Freely by God calling you, which is a miracle all by itself. God giving you His grace, which is a great gift you could never earn in a million years. And you accept His free gift. Now you've got that salvation, that foundation sitting there. And that represents salvation. You've been saved. You are rectified in God's sight. You're justified. You're brought back to a sinless condition in God's sight. Because you've, you've accepted his free gift. Now you've got this foundation. And there's this endless amount of money, and you can buy any kind of building materials you want. And you're told you'd better get busy and erect a structure on top of that foundation. He goes on to say this. No other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12. Now if any man build upon this foundation, the man is doing the building. The man is doing the work. Gold silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest, evident, for the day shall declare it, an obvious reference to a time of trial, the day of the Lord, perhaps the tribulation, 
because it, that day, these trials, troubles, shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. The work is atop the foundation. A foundation is salvation, and the work is what you produce. If any man's work abide which he is built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Salvation is not by reward. You can never be rewarded salvation. You are not awarded salvation for something you earn. It is God's free loving gift. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Wow! He gets to keep standing on that foundation and looks around and there's not even a little shanty or a kiosk to get in out of the sun. But he's got his foundation. He hasn't built much, did it rickety, chewing gum, baling wire. Maybe he did it out of wood, hay, or stubble. Now stubble is like chaff. And you throw it up in the air and you've probably heard of explosions in some of these granaries, grain storage areas, whether it be so much of it in the air, it'll actually ignite and blow up and kill people. So stubble has a flashpoint so low that it'll almost explode when fire is put to it. Hay, well, now that takes a little longer, a little higher flashpoint, but it's going to burn very rapidly and be destroyed. Wood takes still longer. You've got to leave the match or the, flash, the fire on it a long time, sometimes, especially if it's green or wet, but eventually it's going to burn and be destroyed. So 50% of the building materials that are very cheap and shoddy are going to be destroyed. Gold, oh, if you put fire to gold, it only does one thing to it, purifies it. Any remaining little bit of impurity is burnt out. The hotter you heat gold, the more it is pure. And it's of more value than silver. It's more malleable. I forget what they say. I think it is miles and miles and miles, I forget, I heard that recently, of the finest, like finer than women's hair, one ounce of gold can actually be spun so that it would be miles of one strand tinier, thinner than a woman's hair. It's the most malleable, and it is certainly one of the most, you know, rapid conductor of electricity in all the various metals. Silver, nowhere near as valuable as gold, still beautiful, still valuable, and fire applied to silver will cook out the dross or the evil things that are there, the impurities, and, you know, it'll be 99.99 .99 fine, as they say. If you have a little silver block, they will never claim it's 100%. They'll always claim it's 99.99. .99. But it will be valuable, but not as valuable as precious stone. They're not talking about diamonds in this case, or an artificial setting of the price of diamonds by De Beers, but they're talking about the kind of precious stones that when you apply heat, it may change their color, may even make them more beautiful, but it will not destroy them. They will survive the fire. So there are 50%, and within that remaining 50%, there are just three types, and those three types each are different in value but each one survives. Now then, James says, and I quote in James 2, 14 through 18, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and every one of you says, Depart in peace, be you warm and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? What good does it do? Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. Well, then, if you put the two together, they are very much alive. You know, this is why Martin Luther called the book of James, much to his discredit, 
and his everlasting embarrassment when he comes up in the resurrection of the great white throne judgment and is faced with what he had the temerity to say. He called James a book of straw. He didn't like it. He hated the book of James, so he ignored it. He just said, it's a book of straw. Shouldn't even pay attention to it. Martin Luther didn't like it because of this very passage. He didn't like it because it said, faith without works is dead. Yea, a man will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now that's a simple scripture that is ignored by many of the preachers that preach against God's law and against works. They're not going to preach that one because they know exactly what it's going to say and the people are going to get very, very upset once again when they understand that there are some works to salvation. I want you to go to Luke 19, 12 to 27 now. Very, very important one of the parables of Jesus Christ and very obvious in its intent and meaning. I could go through the one on the talents as well, but they're both sums of money and for brevity I'll just do the one on the pounds. He said, quote, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said, occupy, get busy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. It came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, he commanded those servants to be called to him to whom he had given the money that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. The first came saying, Lord, your pound has gained 10 pounds. He had really made a lot of money. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your pound has gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou over five cities. He'd gained five times the value of the one pound that he had been given. Back during World War II, a pound was worth about $5.60. Now it's only not quite $2. Another came saying, Lord, behold, here's your pound, which I've kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared you, you because you're an austere man, and take up that which you lay not down, and reap that which you did not sow. And he said unto him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required my own with interest or with usury? And he said unto them, It stood by, Take from him the pound, and give to him it has ten pounds. But they said, Lord, he's already got ten pounds. And then he says, I say unto you that every one which has shall be given, and from him it has not, even that which he has should be taken away from him. Doesn't this have to do with a person's individual work? A person's individual prowess, overcoming, prosperity? A person's own initiative? But wait a minute. What happened to the other seven? Where did seven go? Only three out of ten show up. Where did the seven go? Well, Jesus then says, But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. Luke 19, 12 to 27. Obviously, Jesus Christ is a young nobleman. The far country is heaven, God's throne. The pound is symbolic of God's free salvation through Christ and the natural several abilities with which each individual is endowed. And from the moment of receiving salvation, each individual, male or female, older or younger, is required to produce fruit, to produce works, 
to build upon that foundation. Now, the reward that he gives is literal rulership over cities, isn't it? Seven don't even appear. Only three of ten show up. And one of those has done nothing but build a fence and sit there with a shotgun on the foundation, daring someone to try to take it away from him, until finally the Lord comes back and says, well, you haven't done a thing. At least you should have given somebody else an opportunity to do something with it. And so it takes it away from him. So in fact, the one that overcame tenfold actually is given elevenfold, isn't he? He is given rulership over eleven cities. Another man over five cities. Why do you suppose Jesus Christ gives the analogy of someone being rewarded for works to the point that they become like a mayor, except with far more power than our mayors today have, over 11 cities or five cities? Well, because it very clearly says over in the book of Revelation, in chapter 2 and verse 26, to him that overcometh will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. And he also said in Roman, in uh, Revelation, rather, 3 and verse 21, He that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, a position of co-rulership, even as I overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. David, remember, is promised eternal rulership over the houses of Israel in the 30th chapter of the book of Jeremiah. David, their king, whom I will raise up to them. Now here's the difference very clearly then between salvation, which is free, and works, which are something you and I are, are to produce. The works are a matter of reward. That is degree, and we are given many examples in the Bible that give us a clue as to what God is talking about. David is going to be the king over all the tribes of Israel. The Bible says so specifically. Jesus himself said, if you can believe him, that the twelve disciples who became the twelve apostles will each be a king under David, obviously, but over each one of the tribes of Israel. I think maybe the apostle Paul will be over all the Gentile nations because he was the apostle of the Gentiles. I don't know that that is so. I don't know where Elijah will be, or Elisha, or Daniel, or Isaiah, or Jeremiah. But I know since they are foundational stones of the church, that they will be administering in very large and important ways in the kingdom of God. I know that there are, therefore, ranks in the kingdom. There are not in the church, and there were not ranks among the apostles, but I'll tell you why I know there are ranks in the kingdom. Because the disciples are under David. And David is under Christ. And Christ said, My Father is greater than I. And the only structure you know of where the cornerstone and the capstone, the headstone and the capstone, are the, is the stone at the top of the building, is the structure called a pyramid. And there is something to that missing capstone on the seal of the United States on the reverse side that is on every one of your dollar bills in your pocket or purse as to why it is missing. And if you look at the meaning of that and the meaning that was implied at the design of the very seal of the United States of America, you know that it has to do with the very eye of God looking down upon the earth. And it says eventually that they will bring forth the headstone crying grace, grace unto it. So Jesus Christ will be at the top and beneath him Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then Daniel and the other prophets. 
and then eventually David over all the Israelites, and then each one of the twelve tribes with their own king. It will be named Simon and Matthias and Andrew and, and uh, Bartholomew and James and Peter and John. But that isn't enough because there are going to be billions of human beings. And Jesus Christ said, I will give unto him the morning star. So there are positions to be achieved. There are responsibilities that are to be obtained in the kingdom of God. The foundation that's given to you, a limitless amount of money, as it were, to draw upon, meaning the amount of the Holy Spirit available to you on your knees in the private place where you go to pray is limitless. It has no bounds. When you want to make a draw, when you want to draw down from it, to have more dunamis, more energy, more power, you go on your knees and you draw down as much as God's Holy Spirit as He will give you, and you go out and you accomplish those works. Now there's one work which many have not yet accomplished, and many probably are not going to accomplish, and it's found. I won't read all of this because it is quite lengthy, but even what Jesus Christ Himself says with regard to forgiveness of one's brother. And He said that in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you don't forgive your brother, neither will God forgive you. But eventually, when He told Peter that you are to forgive unto seventy times seventy if your brother comes and says, please forgive me. And that is this. There are an awful lot of people who, while they are righteous in the sense that they are churchgoers, they're involved in the work or their work or some kind of a work, at least they feel they are, they observe God's Sabbath day, they observe the Feast of Tabernacles, they observe the annual holy days, they certainly are not felons, they would never think of lying, cheating, stealing, never think of robbing a bank, they've overcome a lot of habits. Many of them are reformed smokers. I'm one of those who would manage finally to kick the smoking habit when I was 23 after an awful lot of agony. But you know there's one thing a lot of them have never overcome. They can sit right there in their various scattered churches, and there are probably 250 of them now, and I don't know of a one of them that have regular, open, friendly concourse together. I guess all of them assume that we are going to have that joyful meeting in the air above Mount Zion when Jesus the Lord is coming down from heaven to the earth and we will recognize people and we will say, oh, there they are, what a wonderful reunion we're going to have at that time. But my question is, if that is one work which God says we are to accomplish, what did Jesus Christ mean when he said what he did about people who will argue with him, Lord, haven't we preached so often? Haven't we performed wonderful works in your name? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you, because if you didn't do it unto your brother, you didn't do it unto me. And are we to take seriously what he says in the last part of the 25th chapter of Matthew, verses 1 to 46, when they argue with him and say, well, when did we see you naked or hungry or thirsty? And inasmuch as you did not do it to these, my brethren, you didn't do it unto me. And he says, these go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. You know, it, recur it recurred to me as I wrote this booklet that there may be one work that is still going to be required of thousands of God's people. When God's church split and split and re-split and re-split again the way it did, there are an awful lot of people who believe they're living a Christian life who shun, who avoid like the plague their own brethren 
who are sitting in church at the same time, listening to the same scriptures out of the same Bible, going to the feast on the same date, hearing the same kinds of sermons, but will have nothing to do with each other. Seems to me like God may be waiting on just one more Christian work. <laughs>